Good morning. My name is Jake. If you're new here and you are wondering what the heck is going on, usually I don't get claps and you guys don't even know what I'm going to say, but um, yeah, it's good to be back up in the pulpit here. I, uh, yeah, I, I've been gone for about seven months and uh, the reason being, a lot of you already know, um, in July, my uh, wife who's pregnant with our first uh, son, uh, her water broke prematurely. And so we were rushed into the hospital where we sat there for six weeks trying to hold baby Asher in her belly. Um, against all odds, everybody telling us that likely he would not make it, <clears throat> we were able to stay. Um, and that because of your prayers. And then when Asher did come and was born August 30th, he uh, he was told again that it likely he might not make it. And again, we asked you all to pray and he made it and then began our journey. Yeah. <clears throat> so we, we've been in the NICU uh, since then. And then after 130 days of helping little baby Asher grow outside of the womb, uh, three weeks ago on Friday, Asher got to come home with us and is now home, so. <clears throat> I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you before I got started today because you guys are my family. I've been here um, teaching and serving here for 11 years, and this last seven months or so, you all have convinced me and my wife of just how real the body of Christ is and how real his love is in a way that we have never could have imagined. Um, a lot of you have been praying as I text you, and a lot of times those text messages are prayers that I ask you to pray because I just haven't even had enough faith to pray myself. So thank you. We are home. It's going to be a long journey. We still have a lot of healing to do for Asher. He's still uh, at home on oxygen for his lungs, and he is still learning to eat. And so you can keep praying for us and for my wife as she's done such an amazing job caring for little Asher. But Asher is home, and he's really stoked to be alive. Um, yeah, he's a wonderful little dude. I, uh, and, and you can be praying for me this morning. I, I told Asher last night, I was like, hey, man, I'm preaching tomorrow morning. And I was wondering if you could make sure that I could get some good sleep beforehand. And he looked at me and he smiled and he pooped in my hand. And then he spent the entire night pulling his oxygen out. And so we're just back and forth rushing to, you know, help him out. And I was like, dude, he didn't listen to me. And so I don't get it. You know, I did my work as a father in the NICU and now you're supposed to make my life easy. And he just, he hasn't listened to me so far. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love getting to preach the word of God. I'm really excited to be here today with you all. We are going to continue in the gospel of John. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 18. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, let's pray. Father, I, I pray for your provision today that your spirit would speak through me and through your word so that we can see you, Jesus, so clearly that it changes us. 
Yes, amen, Jesus. Would you just show up here today? Step in this place in this pulpit and speak through me and open up everyone's hearts to receive you, Jesus. And it is in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Last two times that I was scheduled to preach uh, got canceled, obviously. So the first time that I I thought I was going to preach in July and then we got moved, uh, Will uh, Vakorovich, who just ended up moving to California, took my shot at preaching, ended up sharing this uh, little, like, one-liner that he and I were talking and I had said in the hospital, which was when I was sitting in the, in the hospital and it wasn't sure if Asher was even going to be born, uh, I had said something along the lines of, you know, I know that I will hold my son, whether it be in this life or in the kingdom to come. And then we'll share that. And when I said it in the hospital, I had this experience of just this overwhelming trust in Jesus. And then when I heard him say it on Sunday, I was like, who the heck said that? (laughs) And just emotionally was unable to even connect with that same person who said that and felt more like I don't even feel like I can pray anymore right now. And it continued to be this roller coaster journey of faith as we spent the next seven months in the hospital. The last time that I was scheduled to preach, uh, I think was in November, Josh, something like that. And so I had, I had written most of an outline for a sermon and then we got really scary news that week and just ended up pulling back and asking Josh to step in and preach for me. And so he ended up sharing some stuff that I had shared with him, uh, things that I believed and that the scriptures that were teaching me in that Uh, when I was driving to the hospital one day, I imagined that one day I would see Jesus tear apart that hospital brick by brick and that me and my son would hug and celebrate and be like, can you remember a time when we worried? And Asher would be like, no, God's so good. Look at new creation. And, uh, And in that moment driving to the hospital, I pulled in the hospital, as scary as that place has been, and I, and I felt so deeply, so deeply, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. You are it. You're all I have, and you have taught me in this season. And then by the end of that day, I felt more distant than I've ever felt from God. By the time Josh got up and preached and shared that, again, I was like, that's a nice line. I don't know who that is. And I know I share that because I've come to learn in life that this experience of intense, passionate trust in Jesus, like you guys have all had those moments where you are so sure that he is real and that he is true and that he is our savior can be followed by this pendulum swing to outright denials of him. And, and then it could come back again and again. I remember first seeing this when I started leading high school ministry. We'd go up and have like the typical summer camp or winter camp experience. And these students would have these experiences with God that I would be jealous of. And then by the end of the summer, would be doubting whether they believed at all. What do you do with that tension? I know it's not just, I know it's not something that I've experienced or they've experienced. I know that we all have had those moments where we have 
made these outright declarations of faith or conviction of knowing God so truly and then to be followed up within sometimes the same day, the same hour, feeling so distant that we can't even look at Jesus and say like, yeah, I'm ready to follow him. And, and, and what, do you, what do you do with that? How do you handle that tension? Where, where, do, you, where do you put it? And honestly, what, do you, what does God think about it? Because what ends up happening often is we begin to question even our own faith, right? It, was it genuine when I had the worship top moment? Or is it genuine when I'm in the pit in the valley? Which one do I, which one's true about me? How do you handle that tension? And so I, uh, you know, God is sovereign. So he gave us a passage that I think will be perfect for this. It's a passage that uh, if you've been in church a little bit, or if you've heard the story of Jesus, even barely, you you already know Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his followers, Judas. And then as Jesus is walking towards his trial and eventually the cross, one of his best friends and disciples, Peter, is going to deny him. Spoiler. And so what I want us to do is I want us to walk through this story and I want you to the first time, I just, I just want you to watch Peter. Okay, we're gonna walk through the story and I want you just to watch Peter. Then we're going to walk through it again. I want you to watch Jesus. Because the thing that we're going to learn today is that Jesus is faithful even when we are unfaithful. So let's let's see it in action. This is uh, John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So this is right after Jesus prays that beautiful prayer and has that dinner with his disciples. So what happens first is that Peter has all night long been with Jesus, spending time with him, listening to him, and has gone from like Jesus saying he's gonna wash his feet. And Peter goes, no, you'll never wash my feet to Jesus saying that he's gonna leave them. And Peter says, no, I'm gonna lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'll go anywhere you go. And then we get to the end and now he's in the garden and they're there to pray. And here comes Judas with a band of soldiers, swords, torches. The darkness has shown up. And what Peter notices, first thing in verse four, is that Jesus just goes right out to this mob. He doesn't wait for them. He goes out to them. And as Peter is watching his, his rabbi, his teacher, the one that he passionately follows, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And this band of soldiers and their religious officials, they, someone squeaks out Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds with two words. He says, I am. The very next moment, Miraculously, the entire company of soldiers and officers, it says, a fall back in verse six and fall to the ground. And, I, and this is where sometimes the Bible makes me frustrated. I'm like, how are you not using more adjectives and describing how that happens? 
Was it like supernatural magnetism? Like, was there like a supernova? Like, we need to get somebody from like HBO in here to like start narrating what happened in this moment because that seems as epic as it gets. But it just moves right along. Peter's watching Jesus. He speaks, I am. Everybody drops to the floor. So then Jesus says again, who do you seek? Someone, I don't know how, gets the bravery to say again, Jesus and Jesus says, I told you I am. So if you are, you're looking for, for me, then let these men go. So Peter sees Jesus do this crazy move. And then Jesus starts to take steps to allow these people to get back up and arrest him and take him away. Peter freaks out. He realizes, I got a sword too. He just saw Jesus do this supernatural move. So I'm guessing that he probably thinks, oh, this is my time. I'm like the right-handed zealot of the Messiah. Jesus has got the superpower. I'm going to make it happen. So he pulls his sword out and just takes a swing at Malchus. Malchus, obviously, because he's been, you know, he was in high school wrestling or something. He just like last minute does a little juke move, dodges him, and it takes out his ear instead of killing him. Then Jesus looks at Peter and tells him, put the sword away. The other gospels tells us that he heals the ear of Malchus, heals the ear of the enemy about to arrest him. I don't know what emotions are going through Peter's mind at this point, but probably at least some confusion. He then tells Peter, shall I not drink the cup my father has given to me? And then they take him away. The next moment, what we see is that Peter follows Jesus. And as they take him away to the high priest, Peter is outside hanging out in the outer area. And one of the other disciples goes inside. And then since that disciple, we don't get the name of them, knows one of the servant girls, they come back outside and say like, hey, let's get Peter in. So Peter then gets let in. And on his way in, the servant girl stops him and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples too? Here's what's crazy. There's already a disciple standing right there next to her that is getting him in. But Peter responds and says, I am not in verse 17. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing warming themselves. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And it's just crazy. Like, he, like John is writing this gospel and he wants us to know that they made a charcoal fire and that they're a little cold and that Peter is going to make sure that he warms his hands because God forbid that his hands are uncomfortable is waiting for Jesus. And I, and I think that, it, you know, it's kind of like one of those details you're like, wait, what? And then as it plays out, you begin to see that what is being highlighted here is how unfaithful Peter is. He's worried about comfort in this moment. So then they, they continue the trial of Jesus where he has to be interrogated and defend himself in verse 19 through 24. And then we pick up again in verse 25. It says, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? They ask him again. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Like now we got Malchus's cousin coming in 
He's like, I saw you slash my cousin's ear off. You're hanging out with your friend who's clearly a disciple of Jesus. You're a disciple, right? And Peter tells him, I am not. Again, he denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Peter is unfaithful. He denies Jesus. And I know when we hear this kind of story, it's pretty easy to kind of like get the caveat of like, well, nobody's ever threatened my life and then said, are you a follower of Jesus? And then I said, no, I am not. So I've never denied Jesus. But let's think about it. Peter, what denying Jesus means in this moment is that Peter is distancing himself from his relationship to Jesus. Why? How could the guy who goes, I will lay my life down for you, and then very clearly is more than happy enough to pull out the sword and start just like murdering people for the sake of Jesus. Like, I mean, at least Peter's got passion, right? Wrong spot to put the passion, but he's got it. He's committed. And my guess is he probably was ready to go down in a blaze of glory because they're outnumbered and be there to fight with Jesus at his side. How do you go from that passionately following Jesus to suddenly denying that you even know him? When his idea of what following Jesus looks like gets upset, that's when he denies Jesus. When he expects something of what the Savior would look like and what the Messiah would look like, gets upset, then he begins to distance himself relationally from Jesus. I mean, I'm sure it was a lot easier to see Jesus do healings than to see him get arrested and allow himself to be taken away to the enemy. There is these moments in our life when following Jesus just suddenly does not look like what we expected it to look like. Amen? There are moments where following the Messiah, following Jesus as Savior, suddenly takes a turn that we did not expect it to take. That's what's happening to Peter. I think in this moment, it's probably a mixture of fear for sure of what might happen that he denies Jesus. But I also think a lot of it is him looking at Jesus and then seeing how Jesus just let himself get arrested. And then in the next moment, when they're asking him, do you know him? He's going, I don't know that Jesus. I knew the Jesus that he had a picture of in his mind, this victorious Messiah who would defeat the enemy. But when he sees this Jesus who just allows himself I don't know that, Jesus. Where in your life has walking with Jesus suddenly exposed something about him that you are tempted to go, I don't know that, Jesus. Here, I'll give it a little bit easier too. Where in your life are you not willing to even say that outright, but you suddenly find yourself emotionally and relationally distant from him? because he has led you somewhere you did not want to go. I'm telling you, it has been far easier to follow Jesus in the past when I get to get up here and preach sermons and lead summer camps and do things that I really love in ministry than it has been to sit at my son's bedside, be a NICU dad. Because I did not expect it to look like that to follow Jesus. Where in your life has it suddenly turned to where 
I didn't expect it to look like this to follow Jesus. And to be a defender of Jesus for a moment, it's not like Jesus didn't tell Peter, right? He told him, I am going to the cross. That's my whole mission. That's where I'm headed. And also, if you want to follow me, be willing to take up your cross. It's not like Peter had no idea. It's just that his vision of Jesus was, he held on so tightly to that, that when Jesus actually moved forward as the savior, as the crucified Messiah, now you got a break of what you expect about Jesus and who Jesus actually is. Where do you find that in your life? Where do you find that as you follow Jesus, your expectations of him begin to rub up against who he actually is. And then what you find in your own life is you're just distant from him. It's harder to pray because you're bitter. You're frustrated with him. You're sick of praying the way that you prayed before because you know what? You didn't expect it to be like this. We are unfaithful and begin distancing ourselves from Jesus when our expectation clashes with reality if you keep clinging to that expectation instead of letting Jesus reset the reality, it will get in the way of your relationship with him. It will get in the way of intimacy with him. And it can go so far that you actually do begin to deny that you know him. After we get through this story, and as I first was reading it, I had something that just kept coming up in my mind. Why would you tell this story? I mean, if you are John, It's the first century, imagine. And you are trying to hold a group of followers of Jesus together. And you are trying to get them encouraged to be faithful and to remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what the pressure, no matter what the cost. And the biggest enemies that they had in the early church were the Romans, the religious leaders, and feeling the pressure of your friends betray you. Why would you then tell a story that goes out of its way to highlight that Peter, who was the, one of the biggest leaders of the church back then, completely denies Jesus? Why would you spend all that time highlighting that and being honest with that? It's because the hope of the church is not our faithfulness, it's Jesus's faithfulness. The hope of the gospel is not our faithfulness. It's Jesus's faithfulness. The thing that we point people to, if they were gonna ask us from the outside in what we really hold ourselves to is Jesus's strength and identity to remain faithful to who he says he is, not ours. So what John does is he intentionally tells a story that is interwoven with Jesus's faithfulness and Peter's denial. So let's go back through it again. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back, fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Pause there. Three times we are told to pay attention to the phrase, I am he. In the Greek, it's just, I am. Over and over in the gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, I am. Remember, I am the living water. 
I am the bread of light. I am the light that shines in the darkness. I am the gateway, the way, the truth, the life. I am the good shepherd. And so here now in this moment is Jesus. And what John wants us to see is that there is not some Jesus who is getting betrayed and arrested because he is powerless or because he doesn't know what to do. Instead, Jesus walks out to them, tells them, who are you looking for? Because Jesus is in control. Jesus is powerful. And the first thing that we learn here is that Jesus is the I am. Jesus is God. He is not just some other man with an identity like ours, which is pieced together by different things that we make up for ourselves or that people have given us. His identity is that he's the one who comes from the Father. That is why when Jesus says the words, I am, they fall back and drop to their faces. What we're being shown is think about Exodus. When God shows up in a burning bush and Moses can't even walk forward without taking off his shoes. Think about Isaiah. When Isaiah finally gets a vision of God in the temple, he falls down on his face and begins to panic and weep because he is of unclean lips. Here is God in the flesh. That's who he is. And so the moment he speaks, these people who come to arrest him cannot do anything except for fall flat on their faces and prostrate. Now, I don't know how you get up from that, shake it off, and then proceed to arrest Jesus. It must be that they are walking around a little bit of confusion and that Jesus really is trying to go to the cross. They didn't take him to the cross. You see that? He went to the cross because he said from the beginning that was his mission. Amen? He said from the beginning that's who he was. He was God coming to save the world. His identity is from the Father and what is given to him. So then they begin to arrest him and Jesus tells them, I told you I'm he, so then let these men go. Which when I first was reading it, I was like, that just seems kind of like a little sideline. Like, why does he say, of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one in verse nine? Why does John care that he says that? Because he's pointing to us that Jesus, in who he is, whatever he says goes. He said that he's the good shepherd. So he's going to protect his sheep, even when there's a threat of death. Then when Peter, not seeing what's going on, pulls out a sword and starts trying to stab people, Jesus has to stop him. He tells him what? In verse 10, 11, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is the obedient son. Nothing that he ever did from the beginning of the gospel to the end was anything but what his father gave him to do. He said that from the beginning. And now as he comes to the end of his life, he is consistent to who he said he would be. He is always consistent to who he said he would be. We might find ourselves in our lives unfaithful. Jesus never changes. He didn't change when he lived on this earth. He doesn't change now. He is still God Almighty. He is still the good shepherd who protects his sheep. He is still the obedient son who lives out the will of his father. We need to hear 
stories like this where Jesus is putting on display who he is. Because some of our denying, some of our distance from God in those moments is because we have a misplaced identity. So we need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We often construct for ourselves these identities, these pictures of who we imagine we would be. And they're not like evil, right? Some of them are, I really delight in being a good mother. But then what happens when the pandemic hits for a couple of years now? And the, and the kids that you, you delighted in, you, if you're being honest. And now, like if you're being honest, they're not doing great themselves either. Well, what do you do with that identity? What do you do when your identity that you've constructed for yourself is in your career? And then you're stuck at home on a computer all day. Any identity that you have that is not rooted in Jesus will crumble. Or you will deny him to cling on to it. You will deny Jesus to cling to some false identity that you've constructed for yourself. So what we need to see is the faithful son who in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the darkness coming at him, in the threat of death, he still is Jesus. He doesn't change. He still is the obedient son. He's still the one who loves. He still came to bear witness to the truth, even to the point where the high priest questions him and they start beating their prisoner because they don't like his answer. And here is the maker of the universe who can hold together everything in creation in one hand and is holding the hearts that are beating together in the other that are piercing his flesh in the next chapter. He is the faithful God. And so anytime we see his identity, we need to hear it because what it will do if we let it is put aside and crumble these false identities that we have created for ourselves. The other thing that we need to hear in this passage is we are not the hero. We are not the center of the story. So much of our frustrations to where we begin to deny Jesus because one, either we're ashamed of the things that he does that we weren't expecting, or two, he is breaking down our expectations of how our lives would be. What we need to hear is that he is the hero of the story, not you. He is the one who is going to the cross. He's the one who is delivering love to this world. He's the one who is reconciling all things. And I this week was talking on the phone with Jim and we were just talking about identity and we were spitballing ideas. I was too tired this week to come up with my own. So I, I was asking Jim just kind of what he thought about identity. We talked for a bit and then he hangs up and then he calls back and he's like, I had another idea. And I was like, what? And he begins to talk to me about Harry Potter. And if you know anything about Jim, I was like, what? You never read Harry Potter. What are you talking about? He goes, well, I've pieced it together enough to know. One of the things about Harry Potter is that I think people are obsessed with it because it gives this idea of the, you know, Harry Potter is the chosen one, but he starts off as this kid underneath the cupboard under the stairs, right? Every single one of us wants to imagine that we are that, okay? We're waiting for our letter from Hogwarts. We're, we're waiting for that promotion that we deserve. We're waiting for the recognition as a mother or father that we have fought so hard to get. 
Because every single one of us really deep down believes that we are the center of the story. You're not. I'm not. Jesus is. He is the faithful son. He is the one who spears heads the good news of the gospel. He's the one that goes to the cross. And so what we can do when we come to Jesus and we come to the word where it proclaims his true identity to us is we can allow that to strip back every other identity that we have pieced together for ourselves. Why? Because something that Peter forgot that Jesus had just said in the last chapter is that he has given us a new identity already. He has called us to be sons and daughters and children of the living God. He has fought for that. That's why Jesus still goes to the cross even while Peter is denying him. That's how that story plays out. And that's what's beautiful about the scriptures. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we are breaking up the action of Jesus defending his name and going to the cross with Peter denying him. In the other gospels, it tells us that when Peter denies him the third time, he looks and he connects eyes with Jesus. Jesus is so faithful to Peter and to his church that he will go to die for them while they are denying him. Hear this. Jesus is so faithful to you that he died for you while you were still a sinner. You did not come to Jesus and then ask for the cross. And then he says, sounds like I'll make a deal and I'll do that for you. Jesus died for you before you even knew about him. He was faithful to the father and obedient to his will to redeem this world before you even thought about this. He is the faithful God in the flesh come to save us. And his identity is so secure in that, that he can be faithful to us even while we are denying him today you are guaranteed going to go out this week and in some way deny Jesus. I promise you, it's guaranteed. It might not be as explicit as what Peter is doing, but in some way you're going to clash up against the true identity of Jesus and some part of what you want to hold to your identity is going to rub up against it. And you'll either distance yourself from Jesus, you'll deny parts of who Jesus is in that truth and hold and cling to the other things. And what you need to know is that Jesus is so loving. He is so faithful. He so cares about you that if you were Peter, he would go to the cross as you were in the active process of denying him. When you sin, he is faithful. When you ignore him, he is faithful. When you deny him with your actions or your words, Jesus is faithful. Here's the beautiful thing too. We end this passage with it saying in verse 27, Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. And he told him so. Why? Because at the very end of this gospel, and I don't want to preach whoever's sermon that's going to be in the future. Jesus will restore Peter back to himself. Jesus knows already that you're going to live a life of these ups and downs of overzealous commitments to Jesus. And then in the next moment, feeling so far from him, he already knows when and how you will deny him. But he still has a heart to restore you back to himself again and again and again. Jesus is the faithful one, even 
if we are unfaithful. And that's all I got for today. I, I want us, as we come to the table today, I'll invite the band up. And as we take communion, as we do each week, and it comes to this reminder, this moment of the body and the blood of Christ shed for us, I would invite you to take a moment and just ask, how have you been denying Jesus? whether it would be outright denials, denials with your actions, whether it be just this vague distance that you feel from Jesus because he's not living up to your expectations of the Messiah. Ask that, and then I want you to ask, Jesus, what is it about your identity that I need to see today? So I want to pray for us, and then we'll enter into a time of response. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how faithful you are to us, even when we deny you. And I ask, Jesus, that you would, yeah, take these words, bless them, and use them to lift up your name and how good you are. It's your name we pray. Amen.